This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Don King. You know, I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't know who Don King was. Like, he was just always present, just there. Even folks who don't know why he's famous know he's famous. How many other boxing promoters does the average person know who's not into boxing? I feel like it was impossible for me not to have any awareness of who Don King was. I mean, just listen to the man. Listen to what he does with the English language. It's going to be so illustrious. It's going to be so majestic. Such regal splendor. If I had had opportunity to promote you, it would have been something just SKD, as we say in the vernacular of the ghetto. Something kind of different. I'm a guy who loves people. I'm an American. I'm a people guy. I'm a promoter of the people for the people. And my magic lies in my people ties. And if you know Don King, you know his signature hair. That anti-gravity, sticking straight up, frosted tip looks like he got electrocuted hair. And it didn't stop there. Everything about Don King's look was wild. Don, all six foot four of them, would roll up in a floor-length fur coat, flashy tuxedo, blinged out chains and rings. And he would just take over. The guy's always like front and center. It's a little bit ironic because he's a promoter. His job really is to put someone else front and center. But somehow Don King always brought the spotlight back to himself. And when he did... And when he did, it never disappointed. So yeah, Don King definitely liked The Flash. But he was also a marketing genius. I mean, the man came up with the rumble in the jungle and the thriller in Manila. Two of the most legendary Muhammad Ali fights of all time. Or flash forward to him raising a young Mike Tyson in his arms after Tyson won another fight. Or jump to the part where he's out there promoting acts like Michael Jackson. Or rubbing shoulders with Nelson Mandela or both George Bushes. Or cheesing next to James Brown in the middle of Africa. There's a reason people flock to him. Don King had it. A genius for business and a genius for people. He made boxers into millionaires, and he did pretty well for himself, too. Don ended up with multi-million dollar estates all around the country, a fleet of fancy cars. He even built an eight-foot replica of the Statue of Liberty at one of his homes because he was rich and because he could. But there was a flip side. If Don was a master of getting attention, he was also a master of generating controversy. Controversy that the press was all too happy to cover. King has been sued more than anyone in boxing history. The target of a federal investigation into tax evasion and fraud charges. He spends millions fighting lawsuits from boxers alleging he cheated them out of fight money. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong. In fact, that's all true. And they didn't even mention the part about Don King killing a man. Well, two men, actually. And they left out the part about the mob. But look, the boxing world Don was operating in, it wasn't the kind of place where anybody was exactly playing by the rules. Or where there even were rules. Like my buddy Michael Harriet, the culture writer, puts it, if you're serious about trying to understand Don, you kind of got to look at the whole picture. Everybody knows somebody like Don King. Don King is a storefront preacher who you know is sleeping with the women in the church, but he's still giving out scholarships to the kids. And we've always known somebody like Don King who was 
unscrupulous, but when you add up the losses and the positives, you come out on the ledger ahead of the game. And that's what Don King was, right? So, yeah, you couldn't always trust Don King, but the man was a genius. And he had to be, to be the first black promoter to rise to the sport and entertainment heights that he did. As boxing journalist Radio Raheem puts it, At his peak, you couldn't really get anything done at the highest levels of the sport without encountering Don King one way or another. For more than 30 years, Don King controlled boxing. So that kind of power, well, that power corrupts. But when Don got asked about this in an interview with ESPN, well, he had a very different answer. No one can make a griff sound better than Don King. I have not done anything other than revolutionize the sport of boxing, pay more money to fighters than ever been paid in the history of the world, put a new glamour, a new type of flamboyance to the sport to give it a little grandeur and a little dignity and pride to the youngsters that are fighting, made more millionaires out of prize fighters than anyone in the history of the world has ever done. This is season three of Power. In the next seven episodes, we're going to go deep into the shady, lawless world of boxing and learn how Don King, this poor kid from Cleveland, Ohio, spent his life taking it over. His come-up was his own American dream. Did he push boundaries? Yes. Did he break the rules? Yes. Did he burn bridges? Yes. But did he succeed? You're goddamn right he did. It's a story about celebrity, race, bright lights, and capitalism in all its messy glory. I'm Panama Jackson, and from something else, this is Power, Don King. We reached out to Don King for an interview for this series, but he declined. Now, Don King didn't start out as the electric-haired, tux-wearing, fast-talking caricature. He started out as a poor kid on the east side of Cleveland, hustling. The Don King in Cleveland was different from the Don King in New York or any other city in the world. Because in Cleveland, most folks knew him as Donald or the kid. That's who he was. This blast from Don's past is his longtime friend who still refers to him as Donald himself. My name is Clarence Rogers, an attorney from Cleveland, Ohio. Don's dad died in an accident at the steel plant where he worked when Don was 10. And Don and his family had to hustle to make ends meet. His mom and sister would bake pies that Don and his brothers would go out and sell. They also sold bags of peanuts at local gambling houses. And before long, Don got into the gambling game himself. He started moving his way up in the numbers business, which was basically an unofficial, meaning an illegal version of the lottery. And before long, Don was making a lot of money and attracting the wrong kind of attention. Like the time in 1954 when three men from Detroit tried to jack him. The way Don tells it, they busted in, he grabbed his gun, and they shoot it out in his living room. He ended up killing one of the guys. Charges were filed, but Don claimed self-defense and amazingly, they were dropped. Then, three years later, some of his rivals firebombed his house. But even the risk of jail time or getting killed wasn't going to make Don quit. He was hungry, ambitious. Don started looking past the numbers life, 
past Cleveland even, trying to connect with some of the famous people who came through town, like Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Lloyd Price. This is Price from a 2012 interview with CUNY TV. You know, Don was very big out in Cleveland with numbers, and he had a nightclub. Oh, yeah, the nightclub. Don took some of that numbers money and opened the new Corner Tavern Supper Club. But when Don tried to get Price to do a gig, Price wasn't so sure. I said, you want me to work your club? You got to give me something to work in. Now that's Lloyd's version. The place seated 600 people and even had a rotating stage. It was a part of the Chitlin circuit and booked all these big names like B.B. King and Muddy Waters. So come on, Lloyd. By the mid-60s, it was the spot for musicians and celebrities making their way through Cleveland. Lloyd was a big deal then, and he was well-connected. And he was willing to bring Don into that world. I introduced him to Muhammad Ali on his daughter's fifth birthday. I'm pretty sure my parents just took me to Chuck E. Cheese. I had him sing happy birthday to her, and Don said, man, let me talk to the champ, let me talk to the champ. And then Ali was like, you should be my promoter. And Don was like, Absolutely. We're going to take over this sport. Nah, that's not how it went down. In fact, there was a lot Don had to go through before he ever came anywhere near boxing. The violence that swirled around the numbers game, it was about to bring Don King's money-making, Cadillac-driving, kingpin lifestyle to a screeching halt. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. What exactly happened on April 20th, 1966, kind of depends on who you ask. What we do know is Don King had a guy who worked for him running numbers named Sam Garrett. And Sam owed Don $600 for a bet he was supposed to collect. Don runs into Sam at a bar. He's big mad and all hell breaks loose. Now, the way Don tells it, it was just a fight that got out of hand. Actually, Don has his own way of explaining it. I, had, I got in a fist fight and what I call frustrations of the ghetto were expressing themselves. They were expressing themselves to the point where Garrett's head ends up slamming into the sidewalk, which is right when the cops show up. Cleveland police officer Bob Tunney says he saw Don King, all 6'4", 250 pounds of him, standing right over Garrett with a gun in his hand. Tunney says he yelled at King until he dropped the gun. But the way Tunney told it in this 1991 Frontline special, even with the cop in his face, his gun on the ground, King wasn't done fighting. I went over immediately and grabbed that gun, 
And as I did, this gentleman standing up just went over to a man lying down and gave him one vicious kick again right in the head. Tunney says Garrett's last words before he went unconscious were, Don, I'll pay you the money. King, we should say, denies this version of events. Always has. But however it happened, the fight was bad enough to send Sam Garrett to the hospital, where he died five days later. Every now and then, Don would talk about it in interviews, in a way that made it seem like almost bad luck. It must have been a pretty bad blow, which I have suffered deep contrition for since it happened. But nevertheless, I was instrumental in the fatality of a fellow human being whom happened to be one of my personal friends. Some say business can turn your friends against you. Personal friend or not, Don killed the guy. He's arrested and ends up being found guilty of second-degree murder. The maximum sentence for that, life in prison. But in a twist of fate, or others speculate something a little more shady, the judge on the case reduces the charge to manslaughter, which happens right after a private meeting he has with King's attorney. Don ends up serving just four years. In a 1988 interview with Playboy magazine, this is how Don described his time in prison. Quote, It was a dark, dreary world of confinement. When I arrived, they still made all the blacks walk behind the whites. I got a job on the prison farm so I could get some fresh air. I had to clean the pig pen. It was hell, man. But Don's friend, Clarence Rogers, says that prison might have been a blessing in disguise. See, what you have to understand is that blessings come in different forms. And I think Don King's biggest blessing was going to the penitentiary. Instead of wasting his time, Don read. He says thousands of books. Here he is on David Letterman in 1982 describing his reading list. I read avidly in all the philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Thoreau, uh, Cahillo, Braun, Marcus Aurelius, and I went to school by correspondence. Clarence says this education was transformative. As a result of that time spent in the tent penitentiary, I would say Don King educated himself to the equivalency of uh, in excess of a PhD. He could deal with the classics, Greek mythology, the Bible, whatever he wanted to talk about. Like Don always liked to say, he didn't serve his time, he made his time serve him. And you could hear it for the rest of his life in the way he mixed and matched quotes from all those books he read. You know, Shakespeare says, sweet are the uses of adversity, which ugly and venomous like the toad that wears a precious jewel in his head. Like in Cicero de Bergerac, when death meets him in the courtyard, he said, you won't find me sitting down. I know you're there. Don't bring me no mortal men. Bring me giants. And the agenda is to criticize one who is a lumpen proletariat. But I'm like Rudyard Kipling. I can walk with King. <laughs> like Don said, he read thousands of books. Finally, on September 30th, 1971, he's released from prison. Soon after, his friend Lloyd Price flew out and paid Don a visit. And they took a long drive and talked about what could come next for Don. Don didn't seem to care what he did. He just knew one thing. He wanted to take over. Don used to tell me, man, make me big, make me big. I don't ever want to go back to jail. Never, never, never. They tossed around ideas. Music promotion. Maybe film production. Show business. Or boxing. 
Now, these might have been pretty lofty goals for a freshly released felon, and especially for a black one in 1967 when Don went into prison. But a lot had happened in the four years he was inside. Take your hands off me if I'm not under arrest. Black power to black people. They don't want us to use black power. I got news for them. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. We want black power. We want black power. If the nonviolent fight for civil rights had black folks peacefully demanding respect and equality, by the late 60s, the demands had turned into commands. And Don, the opportunist he is, is going to ride whatever new wave is out there. On that drive, Don seems to settle on boxing. And he starts asking Lloyd, the man with all the connections, to hook him up. And not in a small, I want to promote some local fight between the neighborhood barber and gym teacher kind of way. Nah. Don decides he wants to go big. He starts pressing Lloyd to connect him to his old friend Muhammad Ali. And Lloyd, he goes along with it. Before you know it, Ali has said yes to something, though to exactly what is unclear. But he says he'll try to get Don back on his feet. Don takes that blind faith and runs with it. With the commitment from Ali, Don needs to make this arrangement more official. He decides he needs a lawyer, and that's how he meets our man, Clarence. Donald indicated that he had a commitment from Muhammad Ali. Uh, we weren't quite sure what to do or, or, or how to best use that commitment. I mean, what do you do with the most notable fighter at the time? Have Ali MC a dinner? Have him make an appearance at Don's nightclub? Clarence and Don reached out to a few smart folks to think it through. And at, at the time, I, I had a boat. So we called a meeting on my boat. Clarence comes through with the boat flex. He holds Don and a few big wigs, including George Forbes, majority leader of the Cleveland City Council. And on my way down, I had stopped and picked up the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer. And it was a Sunday morning. And the Sunday Plain Dealer headline was Forest City Hospital to Close Its Doors. Forest City Hospital was opened by Black doctors in 1957 and still mostly served the Black community. George Forbes looked at the newspaper and said, Donald, there it is. And we all looked at him like, George, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? He repeated, he said, Donald, there it is. And then we caught it. Don should get Muhammad Ali to come to Cleveland to do a benefit to save the hospital. Now, whether that's exactly how it all goes down with the boat and the headline Eureka moment, it kind of doesn't matter. What does matter is that Don really decides to build his event around helping the hospital. He'll organize a series of exhibitions with Muhammad Ali as the star headliner. But let's pump the brakes. Don King didn't know that much about boxing. He fought for a hot second as a teenager and won a match or two, but then he got knocked out and was like, I'm good. But he can't fumble the Ali hookup by trying to wing it, so he reaches out to this guy. I'm the youngest boxing promoter in history. I've been in this game since I've been 13 years old. This is Don Elbaum, veteran promoter who back then was pretty much the only promoter in Cleveland. Now, if the requirement of this job is that you're personable, convincing, the hero of all your stories, and a big personality, then Don Elbaum is that dude. His personal highlight reel is something else. 
I know Johnny Cash. He was a hell of a guy, man. I did the only show ever at the Playboy Mansion. Willie Nelson, he may remember me. I spent time with him in Atlantic City. I was 16 years old. I brought the Supremes to Erie. The place was packed. So as Elbaum remembers it, he's on his grind, putting together an event on a Saturday morning at a venue in Buffalo, New York. And I told a, a state senator in Cleveland, who I was quite friendly with at that time, that I was going to Buffalo to set up a boxing show. And it was roughly 11 o'clock in the morning, and uh, the phone rings. Elbaum's pretty well known in Cleveland, so it makes sense that his reach extends to politicians. And um, he said, just a minute. He said, Don, this is for you. I said, huh, what? And I get on, and it was the state senator. He says, Don, I'm here with a party by the name of Don King. He would like to talk to you. And I said, fine. And the first words I heard was, Don Elbaum, my man. (laughs) What the hell is this? Don King wastes no time going straight for his ask. He said, where are you at? I said, in Buffalo, Mr. King. Call me Don. I said, all right, when are you coming back? He said, you must come back today. I said, I can't. I'm setting up a show here, and I want to stay till Monday. Don King said he wasn't going to leave the senator's office he was calling Don Elbaum from until Elbaum came back to Cleveland. Elbaum said, put the senator back on the phone. I said, who in the hell is this guy? He says, Don, you don't know him, but I am stuck with him until Monday. Who knows what would have happened if Elbaum tried to call King's bluff, but that senator did not want to find out. And by 7 o'clock that night, Elbaum is back in Cleveland reporting as the newest member of King's Dream Team. But even if you got a lawyer, a promoter, and one of the greatest boxers of all time, there's still a lot of ways things can go sideways. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Now, Don King was doing a pretty good impression of a boxing promoter by this point. He and Clarence had even had a meeting where they managed to land the Cleveland Arena as the venue for the event. But then Clarence got a call from the arena's owner, Nick Maletti. He said, uh about our meeting this morning. I cannot rent the arena to Donald King. He said, I can't do it, he's a convicted felon. Oh, right, that. That began the difficulty of of Don even entering into boxing. He couldn't even rent an arena. But Clarence, he's quick acting. He asked Nick if he'll rent the arena to him instead. Nick agrees, and just like that, he salvages the benefit. 
Meanwhile, Don King has Don Elbaum setting up all the fights for Muhammad Ali. He says, Don, I want him to box three or four exhibitions with three or four different fighters, and I want you to put on a card. I said, it's done. Even though Don is fresh out of jail, he doesn't seem to have any problem paying for all this. He used to have the pants pockets, the back pocket. He had a coat with the inside pocket, pockets on the side, and he carried in every pocket between three and $10,000. And he just put his hand in his pocket and he handed me $5,000. And he said, here, start putting it together. Now, Don decides he doesn't want this charity exhibition to just be boxing. He wants it to be an event. There's going to be a fashion show, and he wants to have a concert, too. So he asks Lloyd Price for another favor. This time, it's to call some of his friends in the music business. Lloyd gets some big names to agree to perform. I'm talking Wilson Pickett, Lou Rawls, and Marvin Gaye. Woo-wee! We starting with the big timers again? Dude has no shame in his game. While Lloyd's pulling in the musical acts, Don's out and about with a mission of his own. Someone has to get folks to fill those arena seats. So he calls in a little help. Don would go and get $50,000 worth of tickets on consignment, give them to the numbers hustlers. They would go out in the street, sell the tickets, come back and get more tickets. That's how it was done. That's how it was promoted. But for important people, Don would host them himself. One day, he set up a meeting with a local minister and his wife to sell them a block of tickets for their congregation. Don's number one word was motherfucker. He, he used it night and day. Motherfucker this, motherfucker. Now, this is fine for a lot of folks Don deals with, but maybe not for a minister. King comes in and um, he starts talking. And all of a sudden, every word, uh, motherfucker, motherfucker. And I'm like shaking my head. I'm looking at the reverend and his wife, and they're uncomfortable as can be. Don keeps this up for a while until finally the reverend is like, I need to talk to you. So they go out into the hall. (laughs) They come back. The reverend grabs the wife's hand, and Don looks at him. He said, Reverend, you know, we blacks, we have nothing. No one says that we've done anything right. There's only one thing that belongs to us, and that is the word motherfucker. (laughs) I'm looking at him. He said, that is our word. Don is selling this hard. And he starts going, every black man, woman, and child should walk down Euclid Avenue with a head held high saying, motherfucker, motherfucker. And then like the great actor he is, as he's saying, mother, he stops. He said, now, let me hear you say it. They stood up holding hands and together they said, motherfucker. He said, right on. Boy, Don King was wild, man. Elbon was impressed. He was just a takeover guy. I mean, he walked into a room, forget about anyone (laughs) being able to say anything. He just took over everything. He could mesmerize you. And he mesmerized everybody. That was his powerhouse. It's the night of August 28th, and Euclid Avenue in Cleveland is the place to be. 
Over 8,500 people packed the Cleveland Arena. The benefit kicks off at 8.30 with the musical acts. Now, I don't know the set list that night, but at the time, Marvin Gaye was still riding the wave of his success with what's going on. So I can only imagine the vibe when he graced the stage. After the concert, there were a couple of preliminary fights. Then, the main event, Muhammad Ali himself. Ali fought uh, disc jockeys, he fought the sheriff, he fought a couple other politicians. I think the only close to real fighter, uh, we had Terry Daniels to come in and, and do, I think, three rounds. The goal was a knockout, so Ali did what Ali does best. Broke out the footwork, talks a little trash, pretends to get knocked out by guys who would never be able to knock him out in real life. I mean, he puts on a show. Muhammad Ali fans turned out to watch the former world heavyweight champ mix it up with four opponents in a 10-round exhibition. When all the musical acts went back to their hotels and Ali took off his gloves, the night turned out to be a massive success. Actually, it was record-breaking. The $81,000 they made off the ticket sales was the most in history for a boxing exhibition at that time. A Cleveland hospital came out the big winner on the boxing magic of Muhammad Ali. But not all the cash found its way to the hospital. The problem was there were a lot of folks who, who took advantage of the fact that there was no experience from anybody's point of view. I had certainly not put on an event. Don had never put on an event. So there were more costs involved than should have been involved. As it turns out, going big had a steep price. When it was all said and done, Clarence handed over a check for $17,000. Do some math right there, and, well, that's $64,000 short. And the hospital was not happy about that difference. I remember very clearly the chairman of the board of the hospital was a guy named Andrew Johnson. And he was upset that the hospital didn't get, you know, $80,000. <laughs> but but he didn't understand the the cost of putting the event on. Don and his crew, they did swing pretty big. Again, this event with its top-tier musical acts and fashion show wasn't typical. But that didn't stop the hospital from feeling like they'd been ripped off. It wasn't a rip-off, but it, it was just less than what they expected and less than what we had hoped to, to raise for them. And this would become kind of a pattern with Don. Incredible show. Massive success, and not always as much money coming back to the people as they might have expected. Don wasn't hung up on the money issue. He was still walking away feeling on top of his game. And in fact, even though the star of this whole show was supposed to be Muhammad Ali, if you ask Don Elbaum, the real star turned out to be Don King. Elbaum says King just had an incredible natural talent for this kind of work. Right after the exhibition, I said, Don, you're going to become one of the biggest promoters ever. I mean, I just saw that in him. It's just like seeing a young fighter and say, my God, five years from now, you're going to be world champ. You're like, wow. Joining Don's team for his big break and the success of the benefits still means a lot to Elbaum. It was one of the highlights, I guess, of my life, simply because that was the start of Don King. That start is something Elbaum has become synonymous with. But like most things with Don King, it's not that simple. I'm the one that brought him into boxing. I probably did the best of the worst thing that ever happened to the sport. Depends who you talk to. That right there is something that would get argued about for decades. Over the course of his career, Don King would go on to put together some of the most spectacular and most profitable fights the world had ever seen. 
and he would betray the trust of countless fighters that he pulled into his orbit. Was Don the best thing that ever happened to boxing? No. Was he the worst? No. Don King, he was both. Coming up on Power, Don King. The bottom line is, those purses were awful big, and they were big for a reason. He got the world's attention. Not just the world of boxing, but the world of business. He figured out what the right number was, and people said, you're crazy. There's no way you can pay the fighters that much. No one else did before. The rumble in the jungle started him on the path to becoming the biggest promoter in the fight game. And they start screaming, Ali Boumaye. He said, that means Ali, kill him. The FBI wanting to clean up that sport, they wanted to go right to the top. And that was Don King. They had heard he had mob connections. They knew he had mob connections. We were right where we wanted to be. We were getting ready to do a promotion with Don. We were ready to launder drug money in that promotion. Joe Jackson ran it, so he had all the leverage. If he said Don King was going to be the promoter, then Don King was going to be the promoter. It was a major success for the Jackson family. Mike and I were talking, and he said, I'll never sign with Don King. He kept saying that over and over again. But yet, it seemed that Don King was already trying to make his moves. If Tyson had, and Don King probably knew this, told Don to fuck off and gotten somebody else, people would have still rode with Tyson and not rode with Don King. You said he burns bridges. Yeah, but he buys new ones. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was hosted by me, Panama Jackson. Our producer is Tiffany Walker. Associate producers are Kyra Asabe Bonsu and India Whitkin. Our editor is Keith Romer. Additional editing by Lizzie Jacobs. Mixing and sound design by Evan Arnett at Spoke Media. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajasaka and production management by Jennifer Mystery. Our consulting producer is Radio Rahim. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to Grant Irving and Steve Ackerman.